Green. If you guys are new here, my name is Brian. I am one of the pastors, and we've been going through this, this great book of the Gospel of Mark for a little over a year now, and uh, we're kind of coming to the end of this. So we're in chapter 14 right now. We're kind of going to be reading a story today in the life of Jesus in this final week uh, that is maybe familiar to some of you. It's a story of a woman who breaks open this alabaster flask, and it has this very costly oil in it, and it was an act of worship, and we'll talk about that story in just a moment here, but what I want to do is I want to invite you in to uh, be able to read this. I'll read it. You guys can follow along, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work at trying to understand it and see what it has to say to us. So chapter 14, verse 1, as we'll wrap, I'll read it, then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. It says this, it was now two days before the Passover feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest by stealth Jesus and to kill him, for they said... Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar for the people or from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure spikenard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some there who in and of themselves were, saw this and they were indignantly. They said, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. And Jesus then said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. He says, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, the whole world, uh, what we see in her that she has done will be told in memory of her. So God, we ask you right now that you'd help us understand what this has to say. God, I pray that you would help us to see this beautiful act that she does of worship. God, we pray as well that you would help us to see the even far more beautiful act of what you've done, Jesus, by giving yourself. So we just commit this time in your hands. We pray, God, that you would be glorified through it. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the final week of Jesus' life in the story, that Jesus, up until this point, um, is probably around 33 years old. Uh, up until this point, Jesus started his ministry, public ministry, around age 30. Jesus would have traveled from village to village or city to city, and he would have spent time communicating to people about God and performing miracles and talking about God's kingdom and all these other types of things. And by this time, Jesus' ministry had grown. There was a very large following of people that had kind of basically saw Jesus as not just simply a very good teacher. Some were kind of debating and believing Jesus to be something of a prophet, like a Jeremiah or like an Ezekiel. But others actually saw Jesus as even being far more than a Jake or a, a far more than like a, a, a Zechariah the prophet or a, an Ezekiel the prophet. They saw Jesus like. King David. They saw Jesus like a king that would one day come and fulfill all of God's promises. And so they followed Jesus, waiting for Jesus to actually set up his kingdom. And at this particular point, most people following Jesus would have viewed him as maybe a combination of all of these things together. A good teacher, some sort of prophet, but also the coming king. And so Jesus does what any good king would do, is Jesus goes to the capital city, and he is about to launch his kingdom movement upon all of Israel. And so the most likely place for Jesus to go to do this is not Galilee. Galilee is like Tascadero. Um, it's a small town. It's not necessarily insignificant. It's just not the significant place. If Jesus was going to launch a big campaign in California, he would go to Sac, not a town. So what Jesus does in, in terms of launching his kingdom project, he goes to Jerusalem. But what's really important for us to understand about the text is that it tells us at the very beginning of the chapter, when Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem, Mark tells us, he says, it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we're told, first of all, that Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem was during the time of preparation of getting ready for this great feast. This is very important. Jesus chose very carefully the very day in which Jesus would go into Jerusalem and launch his kingdom building project. Why this is so important is because the meaning behind what Passover is all about. The Jews had lots of different types of holidays, like we have lots of different types of holidays, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, we're celebrating one this week, 
um, Veterans Day, all these other types of, types of holidays that we have that are important and meaningful, each one of them, we celebrate them because they're significant. They point to something. That's why we celebrate them. That's why we have them. That's why we have Thanksgiving. It points us back to sort of the roots, the ground foundations of our very nation. And we look back at that, at least we're supposed to, and remember like, oh yeah, the Indians hung out with pilgrims and they had turkey and popcorn and all other types of stuff and we're going to indulge in somehow our little actions of eating turkey, watching football games, and falling asleep, and getting into family discussions and arguments over politics and religion. Somehow we somehow relate that to what took place a couple hundred years ago. Uh, but the reality is all Jews, the most significant of all of their celebrations or of all of their holidays was a holiday called Passover. Why this was important in fact, if you were to talk to any Jew today, most Jews, even secular Jews, that means that they're not religious, they don't go to synagogue, they're not practicing Jews as we would view them. Most Jews actually even celebrate, uh, even non-religious ones, the feast of Passover. Uh, if you ask them why, most of them don't really know why, but the reality is it's a very important, the most important of all celebrations and holidays. Jesus comes into Jerusalem this particular time. Passover can be identified for and by one particular word. The word that every Jew, when you say the word Passover, immediately drums up images in their mind is of what took place when the children of Israel, their ancestors, were in Egypt and God delivered them. So the word that always comes to my mind, it com comes to their mind, that depicts that particular holiday is the word freedom. It's, it's what um, Passover is. It's a celebration of freedom. It's a celebration of God freeing these people. The closest thing that we have to Passover in our culture is 4th of July. We celebrate the fact that we're free. We are a free nation. We're no longer under the dictatorship of a foreign nation, having to pay taxes to a king, having to live under the tyranny of a distant king. We're free from that. In the same type of way, this is what Passover was. It celebrated the fact that the Jews are no longer under the tyranny of Pharaoh because God rescued them. So what Jesus is doing is he's setting sort of a precedent that Passover was significant and will take upon itself a brand new form of significance because of what Jesus will do on the Passover. That's the day that he will die. And this is why this is so important because as the king, he's launching his kingdom on this very most important day of all holidays as a way of saying everything that happened in Egypt with Pharaoh and Moses and the deliverance was nothing more than a foreshadow or a sign pointing forth to the ultimate exodus in which God would send another deliverer and would deliver from even a greater tyrant, a more deviant tyrant, a more evil tyrant, a more vicious, uh, evil, oppressive ruler, sin and death. And this is what Jesus is about to do. What Jesus would do the first week prior to Passover, he would basically in the evening go spend time with his friends and the, some of his friends lived in the little city or little village called Bethany. It wasn't too far from the city of Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus would have stayed. We're told that it was in the house of a guy by the name of Simon the leper. Um, we don't know exactly a lot about this particular guy. Uh, it's possible that he's no longer a leper. Um, he might have been a leper that was now healed. Leprosy was a horrific type of a, a skin disease. And what the reason why it's probably that he's not a leper is because they oftentimes would have rules and regulations if you had leprosy that you would not be allowed to hang out with a bunch of other people. And so uh, the likelihood is that this guy was a leper and that he's healed. But others have suggested too that this guy, Simon the leper, is a dad. It's his household that Jesus goes to. And that he had a son and two daughters. His son was a guy by the name of Lazarus. And two daughters were Martha and Mary. And it was in this house that Jesus went and spent time, had the meal, spent time with his friends, eat with them, and in this circumstance, we're told that one lady, other gospel account tells us that this is probably Mary, she comes, she brings out this costly ointment that is in this particular type of alabaster uh, flask, and she breaks it open, pours it on Jesus' head. And this is the scenario for what takes place. And what happens is the uh, followers of Jesus, the disciples, the apostles, they become indignant. They respond aggressively against this lady. They fight back. They resist what she's doing. But what Jesus does is she basically calls, he calls what she does extremely beautiful. It's an act of worship. Most would identify and agree that what she does is an act of worship. It's beautiful. So this morning we're going to be taking a look at the subject matter of worship. 
I want to take a look at four specific things, or three specific things, other subheaders under this, but the three specific things that we'll take a look at is, first of all, the purpose of worship, why we worship, why she worshiped. Second thing, we'll take a look at the cost of worship. Everything that gets worshiped always incurs some form of an investment. For her, she invested, she gave, she joyfully delivered this costly ointment. And then the final thing we'll take a look at is motivation for worship. What fuels worship? What keeps worship going? What keeps it happening? These are the things that we'll take a look at. So first, let's take a look at the purpose of worship. Well, what we see here in this story is that when she offers this sacrifice, uh, the disciples, in verse 4, tells us, there were those who said to themselves, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? And in verse 5 it says, For they said that this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And then it says they scolded her. So there's sort of a, a procession that happens here. First of all, this woman takes out this costly ointment, breaks the bottle, pours it over Jesus' head. And then the disciples, I want you to kind of get this picture in your mind. These are the followers of Jesus. This would be maybe like Peter, James, John, Andrew. We're also told in one of the gospel accounts that Judas was kind of one of the ringleaders here. Uh, Judas Iscariot, some of you guys know who Judas is, Um, and the reality is what happens here is they're indignant, they're very angry, maybe it starts out by them just simply passing, exchanging glances with each other, kind of like, can you believe this? This is shocking that this woman is doing this, and then it goes on to say, then they begin to kind of rationalize it, like one of the guys, probably Judas Iscariot at this time, speaks up and says, this is horrific. Why is she doing this? This is very costly oil. This could have been sold, given to the poor. The money could have been used to help out those that are really needy. This is horrible. And then the third thing that they do is they actually scold her. But what's important to note, all in all, the way the disciples viewed this act of the woman is can be, it can be summarized by one word. To them, it was nothing more than a colossal waste. But what Jesus does is he intervenes, and then Jesus says to her, in verse 5, or says to them, he says, but Jesus then said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. Then Jesus goes on and says, for you will always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good to them. Obviously, that's reality. And he goes on to say that what she's doing is something that's very important because you will not always have me with you. Verse 8 says that she has done what she did. Uh, She has anointed my body for burial beforehand. Now, some scholars would disagree. Did she know that Jesus was about to die? Others would basically assert that she didn't know, but Jesus gives meaning to what she's doing here. We don't really know for sure, to be honest with you. But what Jesus does say is that she, he stands up for her. And I find this absolutely amazing. What I find really striking with this whole story is that for the most part, in the first century, women were not very much so viewed highly within the culture. To be a woman in first century would be, in some ways, kind of like, maybe not as bad, being a woman in Saudi Arabia. You didn't have a lot of rights. You weren't viewed with the highest of regard. In a lot of ways, some would kind of view you as basically being oppressed, being put down, not a lot of dignity, not a lot of value, not a lot of respect given to you. And what's amazing about this particular action of Jesus on behalf of the woman is he actually stands up for her. This is amazing. I mean, sometimes the people... People can read the Bible and think that the Bible actually is very negative towards women. In fact, the Bible, Jesus, in this particular case, raises the dignity and the value and the respect of women just simply because Jesus loves them. This is amazing because in a context that basically would look at or oppress women, Jesus elevates her. He defends her. He comes to her defense. He stands up for her. And not only that, but what he says is the very opposite of what his disciples were saying about her act. The the disciples, their opinion about her act was that this is a colossal worth, this is waste. Jesus says this is not waste, this is beauty. This is beautiful. And what Jesus, I believe, is basically describing to us is that the purpose of worship is that it is not necessarily to have some form of utilitarian value to it. And what I mean by that is, oh, we worship because of what worship does for us. That's what utility is. We use worship as a means of getting something. It's the means to get something done. We worship because there's value to it. We worship because it allows us to get something. We worship God because that makes God happy, and then when God's happy, 
God will give me a wife. Or we worship God because God will be satisfied. When I worship God, God will give me a job. God will pay my bills. So I'll worship God. I'll appease God by my worship. We oftentimes view it as having some form of utility and value. And because this is what happened with the disciples. They could not see the value in what she was doing. And therefore, they basically give their opinion and describe it as being nothing more than waste. And this is the exact same way that we will always act if all we simply do is look at worship as something more than nothing, or nothing more than just simply for its utility. But Jesus basically elevates worship out of the realm of utility and says, no, worship is beauty. In other words, beauty is an end in and of itself. I'll give you an example of this. Um, just before the storm that came in this past weekend, uh, maybe some of you, I, I don't know if it was Thursday or Wednesday night or whenever it was, we had some of the most unbelievable sunsets, right? Remember that? Like sky was beautiful, it was red. I know that you saw it because some of you posted on your Facebook, your Instagram, because you saw this as beautiful. You may have even been driving your car and you're like, oh my gosh, check out the sunset. And you pull over and you take out your camera. Hopefully you weren't doing it while you're driving. Take a picture, it's bad. But then you, you're like, I gotta post this. I, got, I want people to know and see this. Why? Because it's beautiful. Beauty draws us in. Something that's beautiful draws us in. This is what art is about. Art draws us in. We are captivated by art. This is why sometimes people, when they're beautiful, we just stop and we, we look. Or a baby, a child is beautiful. We're just like captivated by it. We don't need to sit there and try to articulate and be like, now let me, how, how do I analyze this? We don't need to analyze it. We just need to enjoy it. That's what beauty is. We don't analyze sunsets. We're like, huh, those hues of purple are like formed by, you know, some of us are like that. And the problem is, is that if the scientist just simply is always analyzing something, rarely do you enter into the actual enjoyment of it because you're analyzing it. Beauty simply captivates our hearts and draws us in, calls us in, welcomes us in. That's what beauty is. And Jesus is saying that what this woman does is purely an act of beauty. It's beautiful. I'm in it. She's in it. Unfortunately, because you don't see the value of it, you're outside of it. Not only are you just not outside of it, but you're critical of it because you don't understand it. You don't get it. You're not moved by it. They obviously don't see in Jesus what she saw in Jesus. And so she gave herself, gave her heart, gave her all just simply because of the beauty of who Jesus is. The second thing I want to take a look at is the cost of worship, or to maybe use another word, investment. Worship, at the end of the day, is costly. Everything that we worship has a price that's attached to it. In the case of the story here, this woman gives this costly spikenard. Spikenard is basically a type of oil, uh, an essential oil that was originally formed in the Alps or in, in Nepal, in the mountains of Nepal, around 5,000, 6,000 feet above sea level. Uh, and it, it, was just, it was a plant that had grown, and they would uh, grind it, and they would crush it, and these essential oils would come out of it. It would take a lot of the plants to basically do this. Not only that, because it was so far, you would imagine the cost that would be incurred by traveling and bringing the, this essential oil over to the area of Jerusalem, and somehow it would end up in her um, hands. And so the reality is, you would take an essential oil like this and put it in some sort of a bottle that would not be opened and closed. All right, I mean, they didn't have like, maybe they didn't have like screw-on type bottles back then. They didn't have seals on there. I mean, this is the good stuff. This is not like the stuff that you would find at the dollar store where it's like, if you like J-Lo, you'll love K-Lo. You know, like that type of stuff that smells kind of like it, but it's a little bit off. Stuff that you have, some of you are like, wait a minute, I'm wearing J-Lo. Like, this stuff's good. You know, like K-Lo, you know? But the point of the matter is this, is that this is not the cheap stuff. This is the really good stuff, the expensive stuff. In fact, Judas tells us in the story that he calculates the worth. He says that this is uh, uh, worth a year's wage. I mean, this is so valuable, so worthy, so expensive that what she's doing is wasting it. And because it was in a bottle that you would not necessarily open and close and use, I mean, like, if you wouldn't, like, go out and, like, put a little spritzer of, like, uh, you know, a spike that on you when you go out in the town, like, because if you did that, now you would open it, and now it would basically be prone to getting rancid and going bad. So you would save it for the most special occasion. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes people would actually appoint or anoint bodies 
for burial, for death. It was a way of basically saying, this is really valuable, and I will point, I will pour this oil out over this body because this, there's nothing more worthy than this. So you wouldn't like necessarily use it for like your everyday clone or perfume. So, which meant that for her to basically pour this oil out, it was all or nothing. It wasn't just like, I'll put a little drop on Jesus and save the rest for like later. Like she, like she realized, if I open this, I've got to use it all. And that's what she does. Uh, so we're told that this is about a year's wage. So I want you to kind of think about this in today's context. Let's take sort of kind of the, the, the bottom, you know, yearly wage to maybe sort of like a, uh, you know, middle family age wage. So I don't know, take maybe like 25000 up to maybe 65000 or something like that. So imagine possessing perfume or cologne that was somewhere between, let's say, fifty-five, $60,000, having that in your possession. And what she does is she brings this out and brings it to Jesus because here's what's going on in her mind. In her heart, in her mind, she's basically recognizing that Jesus is far more valuable than this costly perfume. Here's the crazy thing, the irony that Mark tells us in a story. Simultaneously as this scenario is happening, she's pouring out the oil over Jesus, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. At the very same time, we're told that Judas Iscariot has actually already gone out. He's having dialogue with the high priests, and he's basically discussing a price for Jesus' head. Same time, Mark writes in such a way for us to kind of catch a little bit of the, uh, the irony here. She's breaking the most precious ointment she has over Jesus, and Judas is wheeling and dealing as to how to turn Jesus in. Ir- ironically enough, that the price that Judas lands on does anybody remember? 30 pieces of silver. Um, historians actually believe that 30 pieces of silver, they were sort of like a, a, a low ball price for a common slave. Back in the Roman Empire, they had slavery. Not the way that we had slavery in the Deep South, but they had slavery. It was a way like kind of buying or purchasing a housemate or someone that would come in and do work for you or like uh, take care of the soil or kind of do stuff for you guys on a regular day-to-day basis. The cheapest price or value that you can pay for a slave to own was 30 pieces of silver. So for Judas, the value, the price tag, the way he calculates the value of Jesus is nothing more than the cheap servant slave. And not only that, take it a step further. To Judas, Jesus is better off dead with 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. For the woman, Jesus is more costly, more valuable than the most expensive oil she could ever break out. This is being juxtaposed within the story. And the point that I think he's trying to make is that all worship is costly. It costs us something. All worship costs us something. Let me go a little bit further on this. The Bible actually talks about different ways of worship. You know, we can break it down into simple ways. There's like private worship, things that we do, things that, we, that cost us. You know, it might mean that you wake up a little bit earlier and it'll cost you, you know, like 10 minutes of extra sleep. Or cost you, you know, like if you give money to the church, you know, let's say you give 10% of your income to the church, it might cost you 10%. If you're feeling really generous, like I'll give you an know, extra 5%, whatever, help someone out. It's costly. It costs something. You give something away. It's costly. So private devotions might look something like that, reading your Bible, maybe throwing down 50 bucks or whatever for a good study Bible, something like that. It costs you something. There's some sort of cost incurred based upon giving your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. It might even look like this. If, if for you to worship Jesus, recognizing on a personal level, if there's somebody in your life that is, is high needs, high demands, and they have a lot of demands made upon you, for you to really worship Jesus rightly in terms of being a good value in that relationship, it might cost you maybe three to four hours a week of emotional stress and turmoil. You know what I'm talking about? It's painful. You gotta sit down, have long conversations. You don't like having those conversations. They're painful. Uh, to be in the body of Christ sometimes demands long, costly conversations, sometimes that are really painful. But part of the cost we incur, and we're willing to pay it because Jesus is better than it. He's better than it. But there's public forms of costs that we oftentimes incur, pay, or give out, invest. And Psalm 92, I think, is a great example of this. And I'll read briefly three different ways in which we do this. Psalm 92 says this it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing his praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning, to show your faithfulness by night. Three things that he gives right here. He says, it is good to give thanks. <clears throat> Again, the word good that we translate there is, is, 
there's really no other way to translate this, so we, you know, we use the word good. But here's the problem I'm going to suggest in our translations with the word good. When we think of the word good, we think of utility. We think, ah, oh, it's good. It's good to like, sing praise to God. Like someone told me years ago, like, it's good to sing praise. That's good. We think of it as like a flu shot, good. Or wheatgrass, good. Ah, I hear wheatgrass is good for you. It tastes like lawn fixings, you know, stuff. If you mow your lawn, you empty out the dirt bag, and there's all this nasty grass. That's what it tastes like. But someone said it's good. Flu shots are good. You don't get flu. Um, some of these things are good. They're they, they, they offer a utility, but are they enjoyable? I mean, do we, I mean, honestly, some of you are like, oh, wait a minute, I love wheatgrass. Like, okay, bad example, all right? The point that I would make is that there are certain things that we view as good, but they're not beautiful. We would certainly never identify or describe them as beautiful, wonderful, pleasurable. This is the word that's used here. It is good. It is beautiful. It is pleasurable. This is not a word to indicate uh, utility. This is the word to indicate beauty, glory, goodness, intrinsic value. He says it's good to give thanks. It's good to give thanks. It's good to basically recognize the goodness of God and to thank God for who he is. You know, we're obviously entering into this week, Thanksgiving, and typically what we will do is we'll gather around at some point, run a meal, have a meal together, we'll celebrate. But some of us, in our heart of hearts, we're kind of like, ah, I got to go hang out with family. Like, it's not, maybe not the most fun thing for you to do, because you're going to have to enjoy a meal that might be semi-good, and, but you got to listen to hours of debate over politics and religion and all these things that maybe you did or didn't do right or whatnot, and having, hearing parents argue and whatnot. And sometimes it may not be a good experience for you, but the reality is, Giving God thanks is an active part of worship. It's a way of basically paying a price, giving, investing something to say, through this circumstance, through these circumstances, I will see and I will declare the goodness of God. Give thanks to Him because, not because of its utility to me, but because it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Declaring God's greatness is pleasurable beautiful second thing psalmist says it's good to sing praises uh the word sing praises is actually sort of the verb form of the word psalm the word psalm is is a noun for song you know so the 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 word psalm the the hymn book in the old testament was the psalms and that was uh where they would sing the songs and the reality is is that this is the word that's used there it's the verb form to sing praises to god so we sing to god we sing of things that we find valuable he says Again, it's good to sing praises, not because it's of utility. See, some of us, we come to church, we're like, ah, I hate when they sing. Because the reason why we might hate when we sing is because we're simply judging it based upon its utility. You're looking at it from purely an angle of what value and benefit, what cost analysis is it going to give back to you? And the answer is probably not, because you're not that good of a singer, and you don't want others to hear your voice, and you're a little bit embarrassed about that. So there's no value whatsoever being given back to you. But if you look at singing, your praises to God is beauty. Because God says it's beauty, changes everything, doesn't it? Psalmist goes on to say in about verse 3, he says, we also sing with the accompaniment of instruments. You know, we whip out the timbrel, we whip out the guitar, we whip out instruments. We have piano, we've got kick drums, we've got all sorts of stuff. Those little mandolins and love it when we whip out the banjo. Love all that. We love having full bands. Because, first of all, it's biblical. Secondly, because when people accompany their singing to God with instruments, there's something dynamic about that. There's something alive. There's something that's beautiful about that. It's one of the reasons why we listen to music. I mean, most of us listen to music because we find something that speaks to us in it, a beauty. For me, I, I actually love classical music. I find something beautiful about it. One of the times when I'm able to kind of calm my mind, it's usually like on an airplane, I'll get my big headphones on, and I'll listen to classical music while I'm flying because it's calming for me. I love to listen to the different layers of music. Love to listen to the strings, love to listen to the different layers that are kind of coming in and out, ebbing and flowing through the music, and it's beautiful to me. And not only that, but I am, I'm able to feel like I'm entering into it 
Jazz kind of does the same thing. Jazz creates different emotions for me, but same type of thing. There's beauty to it. There's different layers of music that are within that. And the point that I would make is this, is that when we find something beautiful, we will invest ourselves in it and give ourselves over to it. So singing praises to God is something that the psalmist says, let's do. The third thing, he says it's good or beautiful to declare his love and faithfulness. The word declare basically means to make known. It means to basically unveil. There's a very kind of negative way in which that particular word gets used in the Old Testament. I'll give it to you guys as an example so you can see. Uh, it was when Noah gets off the ark. Noah gets drunk and naked. Really bad story. All right? And some of you are like, what does it have to do with declare? I'll tell you. Um, while he's drunk and while he's naked, one of his sons declares, takes away the garment that was covering him, and he gets rebuked for it. Because what happens is that which was formerly hidden now becomes visible. This is the exact word that's used here. The psalmist uses it obviously in a positive way of saying it's making that which is typically invisible, that which is typically unseen, or that which is oftentimes unknown, or we're just sheerly simply ignorant of, it brings it to the forefront. That's what declaring is. So when we declare God's praises, when we think of certain elements of God's character, of God's faithfulness, God's goodness in our lives, and we proclaim that, we speak that out, we declare that. It's not just the utility. Oh, good, it's good to do that. It's like a shot in the arm. The psalmist says it's absolutely life-giving because beauty is life-giving. It's life-giving. It's kind of funny, oftentimes, for us as a church, it's one of those areas that, you know, I want to continue to see us growing. You guys are an amazing, generous group of people. Whenever we have needs, we throw out life water, uh, last week we talked about, uh, you know, Operation Christmas Child. You guys donated about 140 boxes to Operation Christmas Child. Thank you for that. Uh, some of you also donated time to 34 different kids on the Central Coast that need some sort of Christmas gifts through Family Care Network. Uh, we have a very generous church. When we have needs that get thrown out, get offered, you guys jump on those things and you serve. And you help out. I'm sure you guys will do the same thing with Life Water after the service. It's awesome. Sometimes I think we don't know what to do with worship sometimes. We're not really sure. Like, do we sing loud? Someone claps. Should we keep clapping? Um, if someone, you know, hoots and hollers, like, you know, should we keep doing that? Is that kind of weird? Should we suppress that? I want, I want to say to you guys, yes, it's biblical. It's straight up biblical. Declare God's right, righteousness. Declare God's righteous acts. What I think would be amazing is to see kind of, I think what the psalmist is describing is that when people begin to declare God's righteousness, God's goodness, what it does is it sort of creates a chain reaction because there may be areas in God that I'm unaware of at a particular time in my mind. There's no way that my mind can in any way, shape, or form, hold and house all the greatness of God. So what happens when someone comes up to me or when someone shouts or I overhear a conversation and someone's talking about how great God is in this particular area, that reminds me of God's greatness, and immediately it sort of stimulates this thought in my mind of like, amen, that's true, that's so good, I forgot about that part of God, it's awesome, I needed to hear that, right now, I needed to hear that, that God's a provider, I needed to hear that, God provides, and so when we declare God's righteousness, God's good ways, God's power, it's not just a utility, but it is beauty, it's beautiful, and when that beauty sort of fills a room and we see, we hear, we learn, we grow by God, it sort of creates this chain reaction. So someone over here might say, God, thank you for your power. And thank you for the fact that you adopted me and your, as your son or daughter. Someone over here might hear that and be like, oh my gosh, I forgot, I'm adopted by the king. It's amazing. And that generates worship in their heart and they say something and then it sort of creates this chain reaction just sort of moves back and forth and oscillates and it's like a wave, this powerful wave of God's power and presence and or when someone cheers or shouts or claps or sings, to not give up on that, to just keep entering into that. And how awesome would it be to see just spontaneous acts of worship and love and shouts of praise declaring God's greatness happen? This is what the psalmist is declaring and describing. But here's what the point that I'm trying to make. All worship involves an investment. All of it. And so what typically we need to recognize is that every single time we come to worship, or every single time we have something in our heart, we're always making these calculations. Most of the time, those calculations are nonverbal, and most of the times, they're unconscious. We're not really truly thinking about them. 
But here's the point that I make, is that for this woman, she had a calculation system going in her mind, and the way it worked out for her was she immediately in the moment determined that Jesus is of far greater value than the most expensive perfume that she has. For Judas, he determined in the moment that 30 pieces of silver and a dead Jesus was far more valuable to him than anything else in his life, so he invested his time to trying to figure out how to make that happen. When you and I, we come and we gather, when you and I, we live our lives, we are consciously making these decisions. What is most valuable in our lives? In fact, I would try to, in maybe even some ways, kind of put it this way. What we're always doing is we're calculating. We're calculating. We're thinking this through. So, for example, if we come to church and we're like, and sometimes guys do this. Guys are like, I don't want to really sing. And it might not be necessarily because you're too cool for school, but the reality is, in your mind, you might be like, if I sing, then someone around me might look at me and think that's kind of weird. I, just, I, want, I want to be honest, gentle, but truthful. But the reality is, what you're doing is you're calculating. And here's what you're actually determining. You're determining that your dignity in that moment is of greater worth and value than Jesus. That's what you're doing. You're actually making a declaration in your mind, determining that to keep your dignity, to keep your respect, to look a certain way is actually more important to you than the greatness of Jesus. I know that's hard to hear. I know some of you are like, I don't like this guy, I don't want to come back here again. That's why I'm just trying to say it on all honesty. Look, I've been there before, I know what it's like, I'm just trying to be honest, and the more honest we are that we can just simply recognize what we're always doing is we're making these calculations. When we determine, I don't want to give my money away, what we're actually saying, what's more important to me is having the security of money in my bank account, or having the security of money in my wallet, or having just the fact of knowing that I have cash, or that I'm in control of it, I would rather be more in control of my money than to see Jesus and his power and give it away. We're making a calculation, the calculation is to determine that Having the security, having the power, having the control over that money is actually more important than giving it away to King Jesus. It's a calculation. It's the same type of calculating that led Judas to his decision and led the woman to her decision. Does it make sense? Everything we worship involves investment. Everything. I'll take this even further. We live in a culture full of worship. In fact, I'd even say that worship music is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I'll give you an example. Take a look at the next slide. I thought, you know, I, I want to take a look at the top songs on iTunes today. This is this morning. So the top three songs on iTunes right now, actually, I'll go so far as to say they're all worship songs. All of them are worship songs. Some of you are like, well, wait a minute. I don't think Rihanna's a Christian. I don't think she is either. Um, but all three of these songs are worship songs, and I'll prove it to you. My point that I want you to understand is that every single person in this room is a worshiper. We all worship. Every single person in this world is a worshiper. A worshiper is somebody that values something. They see it as beautiful. They determine value in it based upon its sheer beauty or power or might or value that it gives to them, beauty that it makes them feel, or power that it might give them when they see it, when they enter into it. It could be football, it could be art, it could be music, it could be music uh, like this. The point of the matter is, is that whatever it is that we deem as beautiful, we give ourselves to it, we make the investment, and we begin to sing songs about it. I'll give you an example. Um, sigh. Sigh from being an annoying song. Here's what the lyrics are. Beautiful, lovable, yes you are, yes you are, now let's go until the end. It's a song that basically talks about a woman that's awesome and hot and He's talking about, I don't know if it's either him or another guy that sees her and wants to be with her. And then this is sort of the, the main part of it. You're beautiful, lovable, you know, lovable. yes, you are. It's, it, those are words of commitment. Those are words of basically saying, I'm going to invest myself and give myself entirely to you. Because you're beautiful. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Okay, Rihanna, diamonds. Uh, she says, you're a shooting star. Uh, I see a vision of ecstasy. When you hold me, I'm alive. We're like diamonds in the sky. So in her song, this is about a value system of a guy. Uh, she envisions being held by him, and when she's held by him, there's a sense of love and uh, peace and serenity and wholeness. There's a sense of shalom. There's a sense of, like, completeness. I'm in his arms, and this is absolutely like a diamond, which is 
Beautiful. This is a worship song. Okay, uh, Bruno Mars, Locked Out of Heaven. It's got a word in it that you just need to be aware of that might not be appropriate for kids 13 and below. Okay, swimming in the world, disclaimer, swimming in the world is something spiritual. I'm born again every time you spend the night. That's Bible language. I'm born again every single time you spend the night because your sex takes me to paradise, which is another way of saying when I have sex with you, I'm in, I'm in heaven. You are my goddess, and I worship you. I'm going to write a song about you because you take me to heaven. My suggestion to you is that this world is full of worshipers. This room is full of worshipers. Every one of us, we worship something, someone. Here's what I want to say. With regard to that, we will always invest ourselves. But here's the problem. The cost to worship is undeniable. But we always worship something with the expectation of being given something back. All of us. Problem is, I don't even know if Rihanna is still going out with this dude that she wrote about. I don't know. I don't follow her. But if she broke up with him, my guess would be that the next song that she's going to write is a hate song. You broke my heart. I wish you'd die. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? But in other words, that's going to shift. The value is going to go from being like, oh, you hold me and I feel so wonderful. It's going to shift to my greatest value in life is I wish you'd die. I wish you feel pain. It's vengeance. Again, the God shifts from being feel so wonderful in your arms to God being one of anger, wrath, vengeance, ultimate value and emotion. The problem is, is that the false gods that we worship will always demand sacrifice from us, and we will always pay that sacrifice, always. You might be a girl looking for a boyfriend, thinking that life, joy, peace, beauty will be found in a boyfriend. And if you invest yourself, your heart, mind, soul, strength, might to that guy, and he's not a guy that cherishes, loves, values, treats you with dignity, value, and respect, instead makes demands upon you sexually, You'll pay that price. You will give. You might not do it joyfully, but you will give. The next day, you will feel defiled and broken because what you did is you paid a price. You paid the price of entry, of value, to receive the worship from your God. And what happened is that you were broken because you worshiped a broken God. Mary... On the other hand, gives this very costly perfume, gives everything. And while she's offering this, there are people that are indignant with her, people that hate her, literally persecuting her, destroying her, oppressing her. And in the meantime, she has the king of all kings enter in and be her defense. And not only is he her defense, but he actually says that what she's doing is beautiful. Enter into my beauty. In other words, she has security, she has peace. She has hope. She has life. Because the God that she's worshiping is all of those things. When the false gods that we give ourselves to don't have all peace, don't have all power, don't have all life, don't have all shalom, we may have little traces of it periodically, little shrapnel, little shards of it once in a while, but at some point it will break, they will break, it will let us down, and when they break, when they let us down, uh, we will be let down and we will be broken ourselves. This can be a job, this can be relationships, this can be money, this can be power, this can be sex. So my suggestion to you guys is this, is that worship is everywhere, it's something we all do, and every single time it's the same thing. We will always pay a price and give something out. Now, the final thing is I want to take a look at is the motivation for worship. What motivated this lady to worship? What mo motivated this girl to be able to give herself to Jesus? And what we see in this woman is that she had a singular vision and perspective of who Jesus is. She, in other words, she wasn't divided. She wasn't like, should I worship Jesus? If I worship Jesus, will it look weird? Will people think weird of me? She wasn't thinking, what will others think about me? Because she was focused. She was singular. Problem is, for most of us, is we have conflicting desires. We have combating urges and longings, and they oftentimes never live harmoniously with each other. And here's what typically happens. We say things like this. I love Jesus, but I'm really stressed out about giving my money away to him. We're divided. 
We love Jesus, but the problem is we actually also love money. And we're not really sure which one we love most. Because if I love Jesus, he may ask me to give everything away. But if I give everything away, that means I won't have Xbox. If I give everything away, that means I might not be able to buy that fourth LCD screen in my house. And if I give everything away, that might mean I might not be able to get the house that I'm really looking for or buy the car that I want. What you're really saying is that your heart loves many things, not one thing. You're divided. Mary was singular. And because she was singular, the Hebrew word for this is she had peace, which is shalom. It's another word for wholeness. It wasn't multiplied, it wasn't divided, she was whole. And therefore, she can joyfully give the most expensive thing away to Jesus, enter into his protection, his love, his beauty, and be the most satisfied person there. Even when others are mocking her, angry with her, putting her down, she was the most satisfied. So how do we motivate our hearts? Because here's what can happen. I can finish this sermon right now and be like, guys, have a great week. Go and be just like Mary. Some of you are going to be like, I'm going to go take that challenge and do it. Right? Everything's going to be great until you get to like Thanksgiving and you enter into this sort of uh, caustic, nasty environment where you're not really too happy anymore. And you're going to be like, ah, oh, man, I blew it. I'm not worshiping Jesus anymore. You're going to feel all bummed. Or you're going to be someone that's going to walk out here full of despair. You're going to be like, gosh, I can't love like Mary. She gave everything away. I, there's, my heart's divided. I love too many things. So here's my question. How do we get our hearts motivated? How do we pray our hearts? How do we make our hearts singular? And the way that the Bible basically describes this is that we need to be able to not somehow force ourselves, guilt ourselves, manipulate ourselves into loving because it's a forced love, then it really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't really impact or change you in any way, shape, or form. But what changes our hearts is when we see that all the beautiful acts ultimately come from a beautiful person. And in this case, what we need to see is that what's happening here in the story, and the reason why Jesus makes this declaration of Mary's act as being beautiful, is because Jesus knows that Mary's act is like a signpost. It's like a billboard that's actually pointing to the true display of beauty. Let me give you an example of what I mean. We marvel, we look at Mary, and we think, man, she for Jesus was utterly generous, utterly vulnerable, and she broke open this vessel of costly oil. But in reality, what we realize, for you, all of you, Jesus became utterly vulnerable and utterly generous and had his body broken for you. Mary poured out costly ointment. Jesus poured out costly blood. To the degree that you see that Jesus did this because he loves you. He didn't do this to somehow get your worship or get your utility, somehow that you are some form of utilitarian value to Jesus. He didn't do this, didn't come to the cross, didn't pay the price somehow so that he can just get your service. Jesus doesn't come and say, ah, Mary's act, that was beneficial. Jesus says it's beautiful because in Jesus' heart, in the heart of God, Jesus would say he's come because he sees you as valuable. This is absolutely mind-boggling because for Jesus to be worshipped, this makes all the sense in the world because he is ultimately worthy and valuable. But for you and I to have an act of such great honor done for us is shocking because... Are not worthy. And yet Jesus, through the cross, says, but you're valuable. And he gives himself to bring you into that relationship of beauty. To the degree that you see that he did this for you because he loves you. Not loves what you can do for him. Not loves what you can give him. Not loves how you can serve him. But loves you. This rewires your heart. This changes your little love affairs with money and power and image and lust and pornography and images of naked people. It rewires your heart and says, I want to calculate where my love is at and give 
to that which is most lovely. Which is the picture that Jesus is saying. The most unbelievable act of sacrifice was not Mary's. It was Jesus's. And because of that, he says, Mary's act is beautiful. We're going to worship. I'm going to have Scotty come on up and he'll lead us. But here's what I want to do. The way I want to finish this is I want to invite you guys into worship. The way that we talked about in the Psalms. Which means I want for us in this time, love to see for us to shout out, to declare our praises, our thanks to God. Which means it's going to look like, you know, Someone over here maybe shouting loud, God, thank you for adopting me as a son. Someone over here, God, thank you for watching me. And it just, I want to hear you guys declare the greatness of God. We'll just do that for a few minutes and let God invade this space, this place, invade our worship as we declare it. Not because it's of some utility to us, but because simply of its beauty. And I want to invite you into that. If you're here to, this morning and you're not a Christian... Don't feel like you got, obviously got to pray, you got to do this. You can just sit there with your eyes closed. You can look around. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can, we just invite you to be in this place. If you're here and you're a believer and you've been impacted by the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's done for you, then declare his praise. If you're here this morning and there's things that you need prayer for in your life, we'll have some people up on the side over here to pray for you. Maybe there's issues of sin that you're dealing with. Maybe you're not a Christian. You want someone to pray for you. Maybe there's issues of sickness that you're dealing with or you're in bondage to debt and money and finances and you're feeling the weight of that. Whatever it is. I mean, there's hosts of different things that we're bound by or we just need prayer for. We'll have some people up there to pray for you. I want to invite you to worship God by using your voices, by using what you declare of God's greatness. And then we'll have Scott kind of close up in a song. So again, we'll spend some time just declaring God's praises. Um, if you'd like to just, you know, join me. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sit up here and sit before God. And I want to invite you guys as well. I have some carpets up here. If you guys just want to sit down, if you want to get on your knees, you can sit on the carpets. If you'd like to partake of the communion, remind yourself of the great act of Jesus, invite you to do that as well. But I'm going to pray. I want to invite you in. And I want to invite you to declare the praises of God because he's good. God, right now, we just give you thanks for your greatness, for your power. God, we come to you not because you are of some usefulness to us. God, we don't come to you as if you are a means to our ultimate God. We come to you because you are our ultimate God. You are the end. And yet, at the same time, you're the beginning. So God, I pray that you would just unleash in this room shouts of praise, declarations of your greatness. If you're going to pray, just make sure you pray loud enough so people can hear you. Some, someone over there says something and they don't hear someone else over here saying something. It's okay. Um, God hears. Other people will be able to hear. But make sure you say it loud enough so we can hear you. Just declare it. Shout it out spontaneous phrase kind of erupts, someone's clapping, that's great, do it, it's all right, it's good. I mean, all these things are biblical ways the Bible describes different postures of worship using our bodies.